0: Welcome to Coming From Left Field where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host Greg Godels and Pat Cummings. My two sons had a remarkable high school history and language arts teacher, Dr. Perry. When introducing the topic of the Vietnam conflict, he instructed his students to go home that night and say to their parents, Tomorrow we'll be learning about the Vietnam War. What should I know about this time in history? The next day, the conversation in the classroom was robust and heated, but one student's comments were profound. I asked my dad what I should know about the Vietnam War, and he started crying. For the first time in my life, I learned that he was a combat veteran in the war. I never knew this before. A national scar that does not appear to heal. Let's discuss this with a poet who knows this topic well. Well, uh, warm greetings, everybody. I am looking. I'm looking forward to this podcast. We are interviewing a wonderful poet, writer, scholar, teacher, and I think a vet. I'm not sure I've got those in the right order. Uh, Bill, uh, do I?
1: Oh, it doesn't really matter. I guess I'm a vet before I was any of those other things.
0: Uh, Well, Uh,
1: I was in the Marines. I joined the Marines when I was 17. Uh, Had to get my parents to sign the papers because I was underage. Um, Seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, Didn't quite work out the way I was expecting. But uh, anyway, so I, I I did the Marines first, then I went to college. Uh and as far as my being a scholar, I guess I am, although I didn't get a PhD until I was fifty-two years old.
0: Well, yeah, uh um, dr, dr. slow. Dr. Earhart, that uh, that means something. So uh that's no small no small task. You know, I came across you on one of my favorite uh podcasts and also uh, I subscribe to the magazine Current Affairs with uh uh Nathan um and you were you were just uh, remarkable on this, talking about um, uh, your service in the war, but also your poetry and your life. And uh, I picked up your book, uh, shared the book with Greg. We've had a couple of other poets on, and uh, y- you were uh, you have quite a remarkable quite a remarkable story, um, featured exclusively uh, featured extensively in any any uh, article or documentary on the Vietnam War you're going to find you're going to just keep showing up and showing up in fact you were on the you were prominent on the Ken Burns documentary tell me about that
1: well yeah you know, actually I did a uh, uh I was part of that WGBH Vietnam a television history that was aired back in 1983 um and I really had a remarkable experience. The guy who made the segment that I was in, a man named Andrew Pearson, uh, who had been a CBS cameraman in in Vietnam for a number of years, uh, he got a hold of me somehow. It's a long story. Uh, But I was very pleased with what Andrew did with my my segment. Um, And I thought that's the way these things worked. But there were then a couple of other Uh, documentaries done subsequent to that that I was very unhappy with Um, and it turns out that you know documentary filmmakers they have their own agendas and they do what they want to say so after the second time I had did one of these that I was very unhappy with I did not do another documentary interview like that for 20 years Oh, um, I just figured, screw, I can tell my own story and I don't need to be a talking head for somebody else. Um, when when uh, it was actually Ken Burns, his, his co-producer, uh, Lynn Novick, she did all the work. At this point, Ken is, you know, he's the marquee name. He raises the money and stuff. But the actual work that I did was with Lynn Novick. She contacted me six years before this thing ever went on air. I was one of the first people they interviewed, and Lynn had taken the time to know who I am, read some of my work. I had somebody from the military channel want to interview me about something they were doing, and this woman didn't even know if I had been at Kaishan or in the Battle for Way City. She didn't know which of those I'd been in. And she wants to freaking interview me. And I told her, why don't you go do some homework, lady, and call me back. Well, I never heard from her again. And I've had experiences like that with these jerk-offs. But Lynn had clearly read some of my work, knew who I was. Uh, That impressed me. I also have to admit that uh, Ken Burns, I knew this was going to be – this was going to get wide attention uh, no matter what. And I guess I figured I want to be part of this conversation. Um, I also was able to wrest uh, a concession out of them that uh, actually this Andrew Pearson from the WGBH thing said I'd never get them to agree to, but they did. Uh, and that was to give some of their money to the people we screwed, to the Vietnamese.
2: Oh,
0: good.
1: Um, and they actually agreed to do that. Um, but. And I told them I wouldn't. I wouldn't do an interview unless they did that. And of course, Lynn's first reaction was, "Oh, we're not for profit. We're, you know, we're public." Health. Like, Come on, Lynn. Yeah. You're, you, you guys are going to be rolling in dough from this thing. So they did agree uh, to do that, and I was very pleased. Um, I, I also knew that, you know, Ken Burns was not going to do a scathing expose of American imperialism. It, it just wasn't going to work that way. Um, Bank of America was not going to underwrite that kind of a program. So I knew it was not going to be anything that I liked. Uh, it turned out that it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. It was pretty bad in several significant ways. For one thing, if you saw the documentary, they left the best material I gave them on the cutting room floor.
0: And what was, what was, put in what was that?
1: Oh, uh, well, one was when uh, uh, a bunch of my buddies and I wrecked a Buddhist temple just because we were bored teenagers with guns and didn't have anything better to do. And so we destroyed this temple and um, they didn't put that in. Uh, They actually did include a photograph of it in the book that goes along with it, but they didn't put it in the actual documentary. But that's because uh you know the american soldiers were portrayed in that documentary from start to finish as you know poor victims oh the sad things that happened to us poor american boys um and in fact in many instances we were a bunch of armed juvenile delinquents and a bunch of kids wrecking a temple for no reason on earth didn't fit the model of you know the the poor american soldier victims uh so they didn't use that and the other one they didn't use is uh when I got back from Vietnam, I I took my two thousand and twenty-one dollars. Actually, had two thousand twenty-five dollars, uh, and I went down to uh, West German Motors in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, and I bought a brand new Volkswagen. This is I'm I'm back from Vietnam twenty-four hours. Um, only I didn't buy that car. I had to give the money to my father, and he bought that car. And the owner's card was in his name for another year and a half until I turned 21, which was the legal age in 1968. And not only that, but then the day after that, I'm back from Vietnam, 48 hours. um, I went to get insurance for my car, and I was told by our insurance agent uh, that I had to be carried on my parents' policy as a dependent child.
2: Uh, after serving, that. after being make, a Vietnam combat, combat wounded
1: there. Marine Corps sergeant. Yeah, yeah, But as far as the state of Pennsylvania is concerned, I'm just a child dependent on my parents. You want to talk spit on? That's being spit on. But it wasn't the people that popular mythology says were doing the spitting. It was my own government that was doing the spitting. I couldn't buy a beer in Pennsylvania until I turned 21. That was a year and a half later. You know, it just and they didn't put that in. I begged them to put that in. Huh. And they didn't.
0: Well, they started the um, documentary. They started the documentary with quotes. America involvement in Vietnam was begun in good faith by decent people out of faithful misunderstanding. I, at that point in time, I just started throwing things at the TV set. Yeah, that, uh, that, that was
1: outrageous. That was absolute. These guys were blood. These guys were were amoral power mongers who did not care about democracy or the Vietnamese. In fact, the original commitment in Vietnam was made uh, uh, it, with regard to the French and the political situation in Western Europe in 1945. Didn't have a damn thing to do with what was going on in Vietnam. Uh, the other thing is that, they, that the documentary handles the entire 3,000 year relationship of China and Vietnam In exactly one single sentence. Hmm. Now, if you don't understand the relationship between Vietnam and China, you will never, ever understand why it was not possible for the United States to win the war in Vietnam. Just you couldn't understand it. Now, the things they did do that were sort of mitigating is they, they did a pretty good job of displaying the duplicity of both the Johnson administration and the Nixon administration. Um one of the problems for people like you and me is that we've been studying this war for the last 50 years. We know a hell of a lot that most people don't know. So I suspect that a lot of people heard things about the Vietnam War and about their government that they did not know previously. So they think, "Oh, wow, this is really something." But in fact, you know, I mean, I knew I knew it was going to be problematic. Um I just figured I want to be part of the conversation. And as it turns out, because I was on that program, I got some invitations to audiences that I otherwise would not have been invited to speak to. Um, and you know, if you know, if somebody made a documentary about the Vietnam War that I liked, I'd be showing it in my basement to me and my three best friends. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. What, what did <laughs> you, Bill, Bill? What did you? Th- think of the uh, oliver stone trilogy on on vietnam of course it was fiction it's hollywood
1: so- it's, it's just hollywood yeah. bullshit the only good movie oliver stone ever made was a movie called salvador and it was made back in the 80s and it was a box office flop and oliver stone decided well gee i'd like to make a lot of money and be a, a cultural influence so i'm going to start making crap and that's what he did. And Platoon, and Born on the Fourth of July, and all that stuff is—it's just Hollywood. It's entertainment. There's no truth in it. Um, but as I told my students for years and years, you know, I taught high school for 20 years. I used to tell the kids, you know, if Hollywood were in the business of education, we'd all be out at the King of Prussia Mall eating popcorn and getting our high school diplomas. Yeah. Hollywood is in the business of entertainment. And as you guys probably know, if anybody ever made an honest movie about the Vietnam War, people would be throwing up and demanding their money back. Right.
0: You know, Bill you're a you're a poet and you also said you were a juvenile delinquent when you went to that Buddhist uh, monastery and um destroyed it. I, would you mind reading a poem just for laughs uh, in your 1988 poem? <laughs> sure. Uh, um, I, so this I think is, it's one, page 137. I don't know if you have it or yeah, not. Yeah,
1: actually, I've marked, I've got the book in front of me with all the poems you mentioned marked <laughs> so I Good. can find them easily. Um, the thing about this is I spent years trying to write about this incident. It really haunted me. Uh, but I didn't, I finally, after like 20 years, was able to write the poem because of a certain connection. Let me read the poem first, just for laughs. When I was 10, I thought that I would live forever. I could kill whatever I pleased. I was all that mattered. How else can one explain the firecrackers stuffed down throats of frogs and lit? Hop, hop, boom. A lot of laughs. Once we found a plump snake sunning itself beside the creek. Sluggish in the early morning chill, it only raised its head and turned two diamond black eyes to see four small boys with sticks. It didn't understand until we started beating on its flanks that we were dangerous and it was trapped. Our sticks were too light and we too timid to inflict anything but fury. So we started throwing stones. Small gashes ripped that snake's fat thrashing sides, though it finally tired, but it couldn't run and wouldn't die. It only lay there heaving as the stones fell faster, till a miracle of birth, a miracle of birth, began so strangely even we were brought up short and stood there for a moment, dumbly watching. Out of those gashes crawled a dozen baby water snakes, a dozen more, small wriggling slivers of their mother's flesh. Some were bleeding, some had broken backs and dragged limp tails sideways through the dust. Premature, even the ones uninjured that we carried home and put in jars all died. But it didn't matter. We had frogs and painted turtles, salamanders and a praying mantis. Years later, I volunteered for war, still oblivious to what I'd done or what I was about to do or why. What finally made it possible to write that poem is the last three lines. Years later, I volunteered for war, still oblivious to what I'd done or what I was about to do or why. Because there's the connection. When... If if any of us four little kids, we were like, I don't know, eight or nine years old, ten years old, if any one of us would have encountered that snake one-on-one, we would have looked at it and gone, whoa, that's a big snake, and walked around it and left it alone. But because we were all there together, we had to prove to each other, we're not scared of this snake. Let's beat it up. And that is exactly the mentality of what we were doing in Vietnam. Um I was, you know, I was scared the whole time I was there, but I was more afraid, I was less afraid of being injured or killed than I feared that my buddies would see just how frightened I was, just how chicken I really am. And so I did a whole lot of stuff that I wouldn't have done except that I was afraid they'd realize I'm a chicken. Now It turns out, I found out over the years subsequent to my getting home, that basically all the rest of the guys were doing the same damn thing. We do all this crazy shit because we're afraid that our buddies will realize that we're cowards. Um, And then when I – I don't know how I made that connection, but the poem got written pretty quickly once once I had those last few lines because then I understood what – what we had done that day to that snake,
0: and so, I, I've been around a lot of vets. I'm an Air Force brat, and I have a lot of dear friends that were vets, and that brotherhood, that camaraderie, that um, love and regard for the person next to them that is o- overriding and prominent, is is a the central theme of what it what it means to be what it means to be a no, combatant. it wasn't bat. it
1: wasn't even that that sweet that noble. It was I didn't want my pals to realize I'm a coward. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's as simple as that. I didn't want to be called yellow.
3: Have you had a chance to talk to some younger people uh people that are considering the military or considering
1: that I have that been talking Greg I've been talking all my goddamn life. You haven't been able to shut me up since Kent State. How <laughs> yeah. they respond? Know,
3: I mean, it's, that's that's clearly something that, that should move young people contemplating war. I know
1: some of them star- listen. Yeah. Some of them listen. Uh-huh. Some of them don't. Most of them are trying to figure out if they're going to be able to feel little Susie's private parts on, on a date <laughs> Saturday night. You yeah. know, they... they and moreover, yeah. my telling them one thing, and meanwhile, they're watching NFL football with the flyovers and the salute to the military and the big Americans. You know, I'm just one voice in the midst of an ocean of militarism and phony patriotism. And, you know, it's not like some kid's going to listen to me and suddenly go, wow, everything everybody's been telling me all my life is a lie. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, I taught when I was teaching high school, which I retired three years ago. I mean, one of the courses I taught was uh, the U.S. and Vietnam. And we, in fact, spent a lot of time on the history of Vietnam and China. Uh, we studied the, the French colonial era. We didn't even get to the American War in Vietnam until six weeks into the course. Um, they read Martin Luther King's uh, Beyond Vietnam, the talk he gave at Riverside Church year before he was murdered uh they read colonel robert heinel's uh, collapse of the armed forces in vietnam um i was giving them all sorts of stuff that they would never have encountered in almost any other arena and still some of them now none of the kids i taught i taught in a private school i am not certified to do what i did for 30 years i have no piece of paper that says i'm qualified to teach so i can't teach in the public schools I was hired by actually an ex-Marine colonel <laughs> or ex-Army colonel, um, and I, so I taught in a private school where you don't need to be certified and where I had a good deal more liberty, um, and not a single kid. I taught, I taught probably 1,600 kids in the time that I was there beginning in 2001. Not a single one of the boys I taught did what I did. That is, I'm not going to college, at least not right away. I'm going to enlist in the military as a private. Not one of my students ever did that. Why not? Well, they had other options. Even if some of the kids who were on scholarship, even if their families didn't have much money, the mere fact that they got out of the Haverford School with a diploma from that school, every single kid went to college. They didn't all go to Stanford and the University of Chicago, but they all went to college. And, of course, as you know, our military today is made up of – it's an economic draft. Most of the people who join, join because they don't have many other options. Um, I ran into a kid – actually, I was speaking to a class at the University of Connecticut, and the kid was in the the, uh, Army Reserve, and he had deployed to Afghanistan at one point and And uh, he was only able to go to college because of the money he was getting from the army, And yet he objected to my calling him an economic draftee. He said, "No, no, 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 that's not why I went in. Um, but you wouldn't be here in college if you, you know it was amazing. The lies, the, the contradictions that people can live with are amazing. Um, now, I did have some, some students. every year, one or two of the boys would go to one of the service academies. Where they get a free education and a guaranteed job when they graduate, uh, but that's not the same as, you know, enlisting in the Marines as a private. Um, that's not what my students did, uh, so it didn't really matter much what I said to them because they didn't care. They've got no skin in the game. Their parents don't care. Their their kids aren't going to end up in bloody bags.
0: Right. Well, Greg, what year were you born? Uh, Nineteen
3: forty-seven.
0: Forty-seven. You're born in forty-eight. I'm born in fifty-one. So we've got a four-year span between yeah. us, and 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 I think that that difference between the early, you know, the brothers that I, uh, the friends that I had who had older brothers that were vets and me, that three years is a remarkable, um, important time in history. And I, I, it, when I was a freshman in. Um, i'm sorry when i was a a junior in in college the chicago convention happened 100 miles north of me and then nixon started bombing cambodia and then woodstock happened greg you you went to woodstock didn't you
3: i did yeah Yeah. i did yeah i was working in chicago during 68 when the uh when the convention occurred i was working for m&m's candy company right uh, right and uh, i go home second shift and watch it on television
0: Kent State, March on Washington, Pentagon Papers. These things all happened within a couple-year period, within a short period of time.
1: Everything shifted. When I got out of high school in 1966 in the little town where I grew up, uh, there was nothing resembling a hippie, no anti-war movement. Nobody was smoking marijuana. I would have known it because I was with the crowd who did all that crazy shit uh we were drinking every weekend and if but marijuana was not, none of that stuff existed in 1966 by 1969 when i got out of the marines my buddies that i'd gone to school with were smoking dope they were looking like you know long-haired freaky guys uh i had several classmates who asked me to write CO recommendations for them, which i did um so you're right it all everything shifted I mean in 1966 the idea that my government would lie to me was not even a possibility by 1969 young people are thinking differently and by 1971 the whole ball game had changed so yeah you're right was in a time of enormous change one of the things to remember is that uh people like uh George Bush and Dick Cheney and and uh, what's the Stockman guy who was Reagan's budget David. dude and David and
2: Stockman. um
1: you know uh, uh the guy who was president of the World Bank Zech, Robert Zellick, and uh you know all these guys were also our generation. And they must have spent decades grinding their teeth with hatred. At us lefties and of course when they got into power they were able to stick it to us you know, these are the guys who sent off whole generation to uh, afghanistan and iraq uh, so it wasn't like our whole generation was tuned in because it wasn't but there was a lot of change that went on during those years
3: uh, really remarkable in seventy by 72 you know uh well 73 with nixon's uh, impeachment nixon going out it looked like a whole new world was dawning. I mean, it really looked like uh, the Vietnam War was one winding down and, and Nixon was going to be gone. And we'd never revisit that kind of uh, era again. But by the time Reagan got in, we were back in the saddle.
1: Well, the wrong people learned the wrong lessons from the war. I've often heard people say we didn't learn anything, but actually, some very dangerous people learned a great deal. And one of the things that the people in Washington learned is that the American people don't care what you do with their tax money as long as it's not their children coming home dead.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: by the time that the Vietnam by the time that the power structure learned that lesson, um it, the Vietnam War was there was no way you were gonna reinvent that one. But look at how Reagan fought the, 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 the wars in Central America. It was all with American money and there were thousands and thousands of poor peasants in central america in el salvador and and guatemala and honduras uh, that were that died but americans didn't give a rat's ass because it was only our tax money that was being used for that stuff and when you look at now this all volunteer military which i think is the greatest disaster of the vietnam war hmm. um what has happened with the so-called volunteer military is that the consequences of American foreign policy have been completely removed from American domestic politics. American people don't care. Right. right. It's a, only a tiny group of people who are in the military, and most of those people come from that segment of society, which has the least voice in the political system, the lowest economic rungs. Um, so they, they learned how to wage war without an anti-war movement. Look at that, 20 years in Afghanistan, and where's an anti-war movement? It didn't exist. Right. Why should it? Because the kids and the parents of the kids that I taught weren't ever going to have to spend a day in uniform, let alone go to some bumfuck place and get killed. Right. So people learn things from the Vietnam War. It's just the wrong people learn the wrong things.
0: And, and at the time, the information was distorted. In 1968, I lived in Rantoul, Illinois, and an older brother, a friend of mine, went to the Chicago conventions. He was a photographer. And back then, you know, you had to, you had to go into the dark room, and you didn't have color right. photos. You had black and white. And he came back from the convention with his face just totally pulverized and his camera was broken by the police but he was able to smuggle out a few rolls maybe 3 or 4 rolls of film that they didn't they didn't destroy ah. and we went into the we went into the dark room and i remember images after image after image coming up of this guy showing what was going on there was a there was a police absolutely out of control
1: and, and when you police, read right.
0: the paper, when you read the account of that situation, they were all pro-police. They were all get get the hippies out of there. There there was no there was no mass support for the Vietnam protest that was occurring at that time. No. It's the opposite. Oh.
2: Kent, oh. Kent
0: State, same thing. I I, I was at the uh, Dewey Canyon three in the nineteen seventy one protest. Um, And for those of you people who don't know the Dewey Canyon 3, it was where all of the vets, was that the Veterans Against the War? Were you involved with that?
1: Uh, Eventually, I got very active with VVAW, although at the time, you know, I was still putting things together. I had, after Kent State, I realized this war is terrible. It's something terribly gone wrong here. But for 15 months, I, I believed we really did mean well. We tried to do the right thing. Something went wrong. Um, it was only when I started reading the Pentagon Papers in June of 1971 that I realized this was no mistake. This, The only mistake was that we took on a bunch of people who were tougher than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the Pentagon Papers that opened my eyes to the reality in April, when Dewey Canyon took place, I actually was uh, invited to go down there, and I was not yet politically ready to do that. Um, but then when I saw the vets throwing their medals over the fence, I wished I had gone. So the next week, I went down for the May Day demonstrations, which were a much larger group of mostly, you know, what was it called, new mob or something like that, um, and I went down the next week and got caught in the middle of a police riot in front of the Justice Department and almost got my brains beaten out. And, boy, I mean, Jesus Christ, talk about learning reality. But in any case, I didn't put the whole thing together until June of 71, um, though I'm, I'm sort of like you know, most people wish they had gone to Woodstock. I wish I'd gone to Dewey Canyon 3. It bothers me that I wasn't part of that.
0: You know, I was there and I, um, there were maybe 700 vets for people that don't know. They, they had a uh, uh, partition off the Capitol and there was a statue. I think it was Madison or somebody. There was a statue and the vets were, had a microphone set up and they would, they would give a short speech. They'd introduce themselves and who they were, and then they would take their medals and they would throw their medal on top of this statue. And sometimes vets who, uh parents of of kids that were killed would do it for one of the parents. And not one person that was not a vet spoke. That was all vets. And it went on for an hour, hour and a half. It was
1: ex- now, you know the original extraordinarily plan,
0: powerful extraordinarily powerful.
1: The original plan was for the vets to go into Congress and give the medals to their congress people, oh, really? their own representatives. But when when the government found out this was going to happen, they put up overnight that cyclone fence to keep the veterans out of their own Congress.
2: Oh.
1: And so what they ended up doing was to create this incredible, you know, visual image of all these vets throwing their medals over that fence. Uh, it actually got much more uh, media coverage because they wouldn't let the vets do what they'd planned to do. Right. Um, right. So <laughs> I got a buddy of mine who tossed away a silver star. There's there's a new book. Well, it's not quite new. Uh, McFarland, who did the collected poems you have, have just reissued my memoir. Uh, it's called Passing Time, a memoir of a Vietnam veteran against the war. And it really deals with the five years after I got home, trying to make sense of what happened to me. Uh, they've just brought out a revised and up, updated edition of the book this month. But there's—I got a photograph of this dear friend of mine, Ron Farisi, tossing away a silver star. And it's yeah. a very dramatic photograph. You know, I mean, it's just, just his face is all twisted with emotion, and he's hurling this thing over the fence. It was a very powerful. I think it might have been the most powerful anti-war activity of the entire Vietnam War. This is another thing, you know, nowadays the popular culture has that we were all spit on and called baby killer and crap like that. But what what the American people were seeing in 70, 71, 72 was, uh, was that veterans themselves protesting the war they'd fought. That's what was showing up on the news. It wasn't people you know anti war people assaulting poor veterans. it was the veterans themselves out there protesting the war. Um, you go back what, and look at the media that's what you that's what they see, and that's been completely uh pushed out of you know the historical record and replaced by this bogus bullshit about you know poor veterans being spit on and you know, if somebody would have spit on me when I got back from Vietnam, I'd have ripped their fucking throat right out of their head. <laughs> you know, you're going to tell me that thousands of veterans were were abused like that and nobody punched anybody out? Are you kidding me? That's bullshit. Anyway,
0: I have I um, have another poem I want you to read. It, uh, caught another. It's the last time I dreamed about the war. Ah, and um.
1: Let's see. Let's, let's, That's, and you. I
0: see you have a book on that too uh, that was well, I titled not
1: yeah the book, the book is actually a collection of essays about me and my writing and my teaching uh, it's pretty cool actually uh, it was put together by a, a Breton Frenchman who organized the whole thing I had no real part in it except for an interview he did with me uh, but he chose that that as the title of the collection the guy's name is Jean-Jacques Malot. the book was also published by uh McFarland mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know usually you have to be a famous person for somebody to write a book about you um so this was pretty <laughs> pretty cool um but I said I was just I was just along for the ride JJ did all the work Um, I don't know why. I mean, I'm sure he's made enough money off that book to take himself out to dinner once or twice, but he likes my stuff. Anyway, the poem, Last Time I Dreamed About the War, Um, because listeners are hearing it cold turkey, I I need to tell you there's, there's a woman in the poem named Ruth. And about halfway through the poem, I start talking about the woman sleeping next to me who is not Ruth. I'm actually having a dream about a woman I had dated previously. Uh, So that's the shift that takes place. Last time I dreamed about the war. Ruth and I were sitting in the kitchen 10 years after Vietnam. She was six feet two and carried every inch of it with style. Didn't care a fig that I was seven inches shorter. You've got seven inches where it counts. She'd laugh, then lift her chin and smile as if the sun had just come out but she didn't want to hear about the war. I heard the sound of breaking glass coming from my bedroom, went to look. V.C. rats were jumping through the window. They looked like rats, but they were Viet Cong. Don't ask me how I knew. You don't forget what tried to kill you. I tried to tell her, but she wouldn't listen. Now look, Ruth! I said so loud, the woman sleeping next to me woke up and did what Ruthie in my dream refused to do she listened to me call the name of someone she had never heard of anger in my voice my body hard the woman I was sleeping with would be my wife but wasn't yet I was still a stranger with a stranger's secrets and a tattoo on my arm she'd never known a man who'd fought in Vietnam put naked women on the wall, smoked marijuana, drank whiskey straight. And here I was in bed with her, calling someone else's name in anger. She wanted to run, she told me later, but she didn't. She married me instead. Don't ask me why. I only know you never know what's going to save you. And I've never dreamed again about the war. Now, that was March of 1980. And I'm still married to that woman 42 years later, coming up on 43 years. And I have never had a nightmare about the war in Vietnam since then.
0: Bill, tell me about the power of relationships and wives in, in healing the vets. Uh, in, in the cases that I know of my dear friends who struggle with PTSD and have had have had a lot of difficulty adjusting uh following vietnam it it was the women in their lives that were the power that that helped them uh, is is it that the case with you both your wife not, and not, your daughter no, and your daughter not
1: really it, it was you know when i when i first met and my wife um it took her a year and a half before she'd even go out with me Hmm. Um, I asked her out repeatedly, and then I went away for a while, and because I got tired of asking. And it, I mean, it's a long story, but eventually she decided she'd give me a tryout. Um, and when we became close, she told me uh, that when she first met me, we had been teaching at the same little boarding school. Um, she really was interested in me, which I kept picking up on, but that I frightened her. She didn't think she could handle me. I was the most intense person she'd ever met. And that was 11 and a half years after I left Vietnam. I was a hot wire for a long, long time, and I stayed that way for a long time. I don't know why my wife stuck with me for the first 20 years of our marriage, Um, because it has taken me a lifetime to to learn how to be a decent human being. I was never physically abusive um but i was a handful and i had a lot of problems with my temper um but here's the thing uh, you know i i the vietnam war pushed all my buttons but the buttons had been installed before i ever got there i didn't get ptsd in vietnam i got it in the household i grew up in mm-hmm. because my brothers who are don't have my experiences with the military are exactly like me emotionally. We grew up in a very dysfunctional family, and we're all fucking crazy. Um, and it took me years and years to finally uh, figure out how to be a, a half decent person. So, and, and you know, Anne's role in that was to not leave me for the first 20 years of mm-hmm. our marriage. Mm-hmm. But it's not like she's the one who did this. Um, I mean, her her love has been the absolute. I, I hit the jackpot. Right.
2: Um,
1: I spent you know, the first half of our marriage, I mostly was writing all those books that nobody reads while she was working and supporting the family with the mortgage and the health care and all that stuff. I, mean, I had – it. if you ever hear me talk about the hard life of a writer, give me a smack because um, – and has made it possible for me to do what I've done with my adult life. Um, But trying to figure out how to cope with who I am has been largely my own doing, and it took a long, long, longer than it should have. Um, I stopped doing drugs in my early 50s. I, I stopped drinking seven, almost eight years ago. Um those were all things I needed to do. I mean, as I said, the war didn't do me any good, but I can't I can't blame who I am on the Vietnam War. Uh and I have a feeling that for a lot of people that's an easy excuse. I mean, I I don't know. I I don't know. That's yeah. my story and I'm sticking to it. It's, you know,
0: uh, uh I'm sure you remember the IF Stone quote, All governments lie. And I think the more you— Yeah, all
1: governments are made up of liars, and anything they say should not be believed. <laughs> you want to know something? That, that quote was hanging in my classroom for two decades at the <laughs> School.
0: Well, speaking of your classroom, Greg has been trying to get me to read a couple of biographies of Smedley Butler. That's one of his— Oh, uh, yeah.
1: Especially uh, the new—there's a new one that's just out.
0: I know we came need came out to, about a year ago. We need to re, we need to interview the author. I I've got it on my shelf here, and I just haven't read it yet. And we re, we don't do any interviews with anybody unless we read the books. That's one of our golden uh, rules. So, tell tell me about Smedley Butler, uh, Greg's. Well, Butler, uh, Greg's it buddies. turns
1: out, I I learned at Paris Island in the summer of '66, we learned we had to know the names of the two Marines who won medals of honor. Twice and lived to tell about it. One of them was Dan Daly, and the other was Smedley Butler. Um, but I didn't discover the real story of Smedley Butler until the Reagan wars in Central America, mm-hmm. and then he got resurrected. You know, there's that amazing his his essay "War is a Racket." Right. Where he talks about how he'd been a gangster for capitalism and a and a muscle man for wall Street and just it's an amazing quote um, so i I learned about him his his whole story in the nineteen eighties, but it turns out that he is a graduate of the Haverford School for Boys, where I taught for twenty years.
2: Hmm.
1: so I resurrected smedley's memory um, he had been. Well, he, he came out against all this crap, what today we'd call the military industrial complex, uh, but this was in the nineteen thirties. Uh, when he started bad-mouthing American military adventurism and stuff, uh, he was written out of the history of the school where I taught. He had he was perceived as a guy who had betrayed his class, his people, rich Republicans. Um And when I got there, years and years later, um, like 65 years later, um, there was a guy who was doing research, uh, a 1969 graduate of the school. And he, he stumbled upon Smedley Butler, and he wrote to the headmaster, who is the guy who had hired me, and said, how could I go to the Haverford School for 13 years and never have heard about Smedley Butler? Well, Joe said, you should talk to Bill Earhart. He's a big Smedley Butler fan. I'd had a poster <laughs> of Butler hanging in my classroom since the first day I started teaching there. With that, you know, I was a gangster for capitalism speech. Um, so with, with Fred's money and Joe, the headmaster's support, uh, we resurrected Smedley Butler's uh, place on the Haverford School campus. Uh, there, the classroom I used for my last six years was, was the Smedley-Butler classroom, which Fred – I think he gave him 50000 bucks, and they put a plaque up that said the Smedley-Butler classroom. Um, there is an oil painting of Butler done by a student hanging outside the upper school admissions office. There's a bench on campus that circles a tree that is the Butler bench and has six brass plates that describe his life, um, which I wrote the text for. Um, So we we basically we introduced Medley Butler to the school that had forgotten about him because they thought he was a traitor. Um, So I feel good about that. And I taught a course. Uh, for three years, I created a course called Smedley Butler and the Rise of American Imperialism, um, and that was a lot of fun. So now, unfortunately, since I've moved on, uh, the history elective courses—you know—the history teachers teach their own little hobby horses. So nobody's teaching my Vietnam course, and nobody's teaching my Smedley Butler course. But for a few years, at least, that stuff was going on. And Butler is an interesting character, you know. He he was writing letters to his father, who was a congressman, as a young lieutenant from uh, Central America, saying, "This is bullshit. This is crap. All we're doing down here is making, you know, we're defending the the rich gringos against you know, these poor peasants who got nothing." Um, and he's he's writing this stuff to his father, saying, "Why are we doing this crap?" Um, but he continued to do it for 34 years. Why? Because he loved to fight. He loved the adrenaline charge of combat. He just mm. plain was having fun.
0: Any any so thoughts on this... Major General Smedley Butler,
3: um, Greg? Well, he was, yeah, well, yeah. He, he uh, I'm sure I'm sure Bill taught this too, but he was approached by the Liberty League in the 30s. Oh yes. Who, who wanted to? Well, I'll let you tell the story, Bill. But it's a great story. It's apocryphal. A lot of it's not apocryphal, but a lot of people don't believe it or buy it. But I, I do. You want to tell that story? Oh,
1: yeah. It very much happened in when Butler retired in I think 1931. Um, a bunch of very rich people, the J.P. Morgan guys and uh, the DuPont brothers, um, these rich, these rich industrialists were convinced that. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a commie bastard who was going to ruin their lives and ruin America, um, and they got together in 1934 and tried to organize what amounted, what would have been a coup d'état. And they really wanted to get Douglas MacArthur to head this thing. They were going to use the membership of the American Legion as their shock troops, um, but but basically they realized, you know. MacArthur's MacArthur's soldiers hated him. He he was a miserable son of a bitch who didn't care about his troops or anybody but himself. Um, So they decided they would ask Butler because they knew that Butler was widely respected by the ordinary soldiers. What they missed was that Butler also (laughs) loved the American Constitution. (laughs) And so he kept his mouth shut and collected enough information to figure out what was going on. And then he turned this over to Congress and they did, they had hearings. Uh, they never called the big shots. The DuPonts never got called to testify. Uh, uh, Morgan never got called to testify um, because, but Roosevelt apparently pulled those guys aside and said, I know what you're up to. And if you don't drop this, I'm going to, Come down on you like a ton of bricks. I'll ruin you. So they went away. But here's the interesting thing. That committee, one of the members of that committee in 1935 was Tip O'Neill, huh. who who was the Speaker of the House in the 1960s, I think into the early 70s. He was there forever. And before he died, after he retired from Congress, but before he died, he admitted that everything Butler had told that committee was true. Everything about the DuPonts and all the guys who were behind this thing, it was all true. But, you know, Butler that now what 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 would have happened if he had gone along with it, I don't know, but he saved he saved America from a what would amount what amounted to a coup d'etat.
3: It's interesting you um, brought up Douglas MacArthur because of course he was the guy that that attacked the Bonus Market Marchers in 1931. He was Hoover unleashed him, and I just there read a soldiers review.
1: that he, yeah, they were soldiers yeah, he, that that MacArthur had commanded in the first World War.
3: Yeah. he was. And it was funny because uh, uh, I just read a, a book review that this book claims that he he was told by Hoover to just surround that plaza. That was that uh, flats uh, something flats where the soldiers were in camp, 30,000 of them. And he was told to just surround him, but he he said, I never got the order. And he attacked him. And Eisenhower was with him, and so was Patton in that whole thing.
1: Well, not only did he claim he never got the order, Eisenhower had the order in his hand, and he tried to give it to MacArthur. And MacArthur said, I don't have time for writing. (laughs) And Eisenhower admitted to that one. Yeah, Eisenhower and Patton were both majors at the time. Eisenhower was his uh, chief of staff, and Patton was in charge of the tanks and cavalry that went over the bridge that uh, Hoover had told him not to cross. But Two. when when Roosevelt heard about that, Roosevelt supposedly, his first response of was, I'll be the next president. Yeah. Yeah. It's too
0: bad you uh, aren't still teaching. You could have uh, Greg uh, stop in as a guest lecturer in your smedley Butler unit
1: well i i miss I missed mixing it up with the boys. I had a great deal of fun doing that, uh, but I don't miss grading compositions, <laughs> and I don't miss faculty meetings, and I don't miss I haven't had hard shoes on or a tie since June of 2019. Mm. Um, there's a lot of stuff I don't miss about about the teaching. It was time. It was just time. I had a wonderful time there. Um, I got away with stuff that probably most of the teachers at that school couldn't have gotten away with, let alone at any other school. yeah, um, but
0: you know, but, bill, uh, I, I I do an introduction to these podcasts, and i uh, my introduction was a story about a high school teacher that was a remarkable teacher, reminds me of you. And he would uh, start his lecture, he would start his unit on Vietnam by saying, Tomorrow we're starting to learn about Vietnam.' I want you to go home and ask your parents, what should I know about Vietnam? And of course, when the kids come back the next day, the 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 comments are just, you know, they're arguing and those in favor you know, we should have bombed them or this was horrible. Their, you know, their parents are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, adamant in feeding these kids. You know, I want to tell you this story. And one 17 year old high school girl said, I asked my dad, what should I know about Vietnam? And he started to cry. And he started to cry because he had never disclosed to her before that he was in Vietnam. He was a combat vet. Wow. And just the fact that she would ask him that, you know, meant so much to him. And I think that's one of the things I get with your poetry is that it's the power of how this event shapes lives, not just just the lives of you. The lives of me, the lives of this seventeen-year-old girl, the lives of other, you know, friends that have struggled with this, and um, it's um, it, it's it's a powerful story, and you tell it you tell it so well, you tell it so well.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> um, the one the one thing I have, I've I've come to terms with it, I've accepted it, but you know, in that book that you've got the the, the my collected poems, there are three hundred and eight poems in that book and barely a quarter of them deal with war in any way, shape, or form. Right. Um, there's a whole lot more to my life than the 13 months I spent in Vietnam, but it is also true that I have spent a great part of my life trying to come to terms with those 13 months. Right. Uh, right. I also realize that being recognized as a Vietnam War poet is better than not being recognized at all. <laughs> Which is the fate of most writers like me? Right. Nobody's well, what ever is, heard what of is you your, or...
3: Bill? What you're thinking about? What's going on today? I mean, what is your, you know, all of us? Nobody's immune to what's going on in the news today. The war in Ukraine, U.S. foreign policy, drone, drone warfare. What are your views on on how do you see things today? Uh, have we learned anything? Uh,
1: how much time have we got? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> I you know I didn't know how to uh if you go to a website called LA Progressive you will find a whole series of short essays that I have written and published on that website that that pretty much over the years since Dolt 45 ran for president originally will trace how I feel about this stuff um, I think that the uh, the smartest thing Joe Biden ever did was to get the hell out of Afghanistan. I know he took a lot of grief about the disaster that, that followed, but look at the disaster that followed when we left Vietnam. There's no clean way to get out of a situation like that. There just isn't. And we could have stayed there till hell froze over, and the same chaos would have happened. Um, and meanwhile, I I think it was a very smart decision to get the hell out of there. I am disappointed that he is willing to use so many drone missiles in other situations. I was heartbroken when the war in Ukraine started. Uh, I don't know quite... uh, I actually wrote a very depressing poem about that. It went back in February when it started, but the way I've dealt with that is that uh, on a monthly basis I make regular contributions to the Ukrainian Catholic Church here in Philadelphia and they have promised that that money will go entirely to civilian relief in Ukraine and that's what I'm doing I do, whether we should be giving them weapons or attacking Russia or what I'm out of it anymore I just I I, I you know what did we think was going to happen pushing NATO Right up to the borders of Russia, what do you think the Russians were going to do if we bring in all these Warsaw Pact nations into NATO? What the hell would the u s do if we if if Russia signed military alliances with Mexico and Canada? you think we'd just sit back and go, "Oh well, there you go um, certainly you you know I have nothing good to say about Vladimir Putin, but that doesn't make Rubbing the Russians' noses in the fact that they lost the Cold War—a good idea. They, right. So this—I've been waiting for this to happen for the last 25 years. Ever since stupid Clinton started bringing in all these Warsaw Pact countries, uh, you know, what did you expect was going to happen? Right. So, I, although the Russians certainly have nothing good to say about the Russians, the United States and its foreign policy helped to create this situation. So the only thing I can do is try to give a little bit of relief to the poor bastards who are suffering from the war. That's it. That's what I do mm-hmm. every month. Send them money. Right. And the rest of it, I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly glad that uh, adult 45 took a beating in the midterms. <laughs> uh, but, well, I just – it it's very difficult to – feel good about much of anything these days. Mm. I am glad that uh, in Pennsylvania we actually elected a dec- half-decent governor and a half-decent senator. And in local elections the uh, this Pennsylvania State House, the lower house in Harrisburg, actually flipped over to the Democratic control for the first time in 12 years. So I guess that's nice uh, because you know but, how do I feel now? I don't know. I mean, the thing is that a lot of this is this is this is stuff you want to cut out of the interview. uh I mean, my prognosis for the future is pretty bad because I think no matter what happens domestically, no matter what happens with foreign policy, once global warming really takes hold, we're all fucked, and I do not see the human race changing its behavior completely enough or fast enough to stave off the disaster that we have already put in motion. So I think that, you know, that's the big picture. And I keep reminding myself that um, the universe is a big damn place and it's been here for a long time. And it really doesn't care about tiny little planet earth, let alone about Bill Earhart.
0: Yeah. If you're, you're right about that, just the, the, the new, um uh, well Biden just got back from overseas, not one mention of fossil fuel limitation, not one you know. Yeah, anyway. so it's so frustrating.
1: Um so that's that's what I feel about today. I still write my stupid little op ed pieces, though I don't think it's gonna change anything, but it keeps my head from exploding. I still write poems now and then about sometimes about political things, sometimes not. Um, but I'm yeah, uh, basically I'm seventy four years old and I find myself uh not all that eager to stick around much longer. Uh I don't I don't feel good about the way all this is gonna end up. I do think that uh American democracy, such as it is, uh has has preserved itself for at least another two years i thought I thought that Republicans were going to take charge of Congress and uh, set things up so that trump or or DeSantis who's even scarier uh would win in twenty twenty four and that would be the end of a two party system and we would now we would have an openly fascist state. It looks like that we've we've staved that one off for at least two more years <laughs> so right. well you I, stick
3: around bill you gotta stick around you gotta keep we'll see. There's too few people that are uh, uh, advocating for change and advocating for uh, justice and, 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 and sense, good sense. So we need uh, everybody. We need absolutely
1: well, and everybody. every time I get a little discouraged, I just, I just had a long conversation the other uh, last, last night with uh, Dan Ellsberg. And uh, this is a guy who's like 91 years old. And he's still out there doing this stuff, and I just think, well, Jesus, if he can, if he can find the energy to do it, I certainly can't quit yet, right? Uh, right, because he's well. Well, he's I'm going to link. 91. I'm going
0: to link to your articles in the LA Progressive that uh, June 2014 to November, just so people will understand that you're a lot more than just. Um, you know, Vietnam poems. You you have a lot more to say, and you're a powerful critic of our involvement in foreign policies that are misguided, that we don't seem to shed light on, but you shed light on them. And um, I, you know, geez, Bill, I've got, I've got like five more poems. I want to just keep chatting and chatting and chatting with you, but maybe we'll just kind of do this again sometime.
1: Well, uh, I'm not, as far as I know, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I suppose yeah, so, so we I guess how want what the hell time is it anyway, we've been on for like an hour, all right, so how, I guess how, it is time to cut this off, but I, uh, how about this? we one? can do this again, and you know, yeah whenever, let's, let's do it again, let's do it again,
0: yeah i um i why don't you what, the, the name of your book is thank you for your service, and one thing that just bothers me when Veterans' Day comes is all the kind of false grace that people bestow on these. You when know, they see the Vietnam hat, thank you for your service. And it's just so, it's so shallow. It's so, I, I know the intentions are good. I know that people are really trying to make a connection with a other human being, but it misses, it misses for well, me they, they and I think, think it misses for to, you too, doesn't
1: it? Oh, I just, it drives me crazy when people say that to me. Um, And and this, interestingly enough, I wrote this poem. This was the last poem I wrote before I sent the manuscript off to the publisher. And it's the perfect poem to end the book with and to lend its title to the book. I love it. It's called Thank You for Your Service. Yes, of course, it's what you say these days, like genuflecting in a Catholic church like saying bless you to a sneeze, a superstitious reflex, but, of course, sincere? Or is it just to ease the guilt of sending someone else to do your dirty work? Whatever. I just say, you're welcome. Let it go at that. When what I'd really like to say is, Thank you for my fucking service in that fucking war I've dragged from day to day for 50 fucking years, like a fucking corpse that won't stay dead? That fucking nightmare that my fucking country told me was my fucking patriotic duty to fight? For what exactly do you think you're thanking me? Service to my country? You empty-headed idiot. You think I want your thanks for what I did? You shallow, superficial twit. You've no idea what I did or why or what it cost a people who had never done us any harm nor ever would or could. You can take your thank you for my service, shove it where the sun doesn't shine. But you wouldn't understand. You'd only get insulted if I told you what I'd really like to say. So I just say, you're welcome. Smile. Walk away.
0: Well at the end of performances they drop the mic I think we can uh, drop the pin on that one that's uh,
3: <laughs>
0: <good>. which which <laughs> like, figuratively and literally just did
3: yeah, well, Bill okay. you're just uh, I
0: I I don't know but I have been looking forward to this so much I I think that if people have got to pick up your collection your book thank you for your service which is a whole series of poems and like you said you know, a quarter of them are are war poems. It's it's about a young man and sexuality and daughters and family and your mother-in-law and it's about so much more. And um, it it just shows you that uh, you know, the foundation of your your basic being is a good person. And uh, I I know you've struggled to say to get there, but boy, you're there now. So that's my well, thank you. That's very my two much. cents.
1: Great and if pleasure. you great, do, great, great do your pleasure. listeners give you any feedback? Oh yeah. I mean if people if people want to hear more, if you hear from folks that they'd like to hear more of this, we can do this again in a few months or something.
0: Oh, I'd love to. You're great. um yeah, um maybe get you with other poets or something. I don't know, maybe we send you the smedley book and if we can't get the author, you could chat a little bit about that. That'd be fun yeah. to tie in a lot of your teaching and history and and um, how how powerful that is in shaping uh, war protests. Um,
1: so. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for accommodating my technophobia.
0: Oh, you're just sure. fine. and
1: thank you for I
0: had to write back and forth back and forth, and then you finally said, okay, you're persistent. I'll do your dog your your dog <laughs> a podcast. Uh, uh, but uh, and I'm so glad you did. So um, this was wonderful. Thank you. Well, you're great, very great welcome. Great
1: pleasure. Thank you. Okay. For
0: your Thank you for your poem. Greg and
1: Pat, good to talk with you. Bye now. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
3: <laughs>